This is a special Canadian edition of Famous Lost Words. Now, last year at this time, we focused on the biggest Canadian hits ever. You can check that one out in the archives, episodes 501 and 502. This time around, the artists themselves will talk about how their own cities helped to shape their experience. Randy Bachman on the Winnipeg concert that changed his life. Blue Rodeo on how a trip to New York made them better musicians and prepared them to conquer the Toronto scene and the Canadian charts. We'll also hear from Streetheart, Maestro Fresh West, Triumph, Teenage Head, Bare Naked Ladies, Northern Pikes, Paul Anka, Justin Bieber, Powder Blues Band, and so many others. We will also talk about the unparalleled determination of one of our biggest stars, Brian Adams. Christopher, you had a front row seat to so many major events in Canadian music. But most importantly, you were the original Much Music VJ, so you witnessed the rise of so many Canadian acts. And your buddy Terry David Mulligan almost single-handedly waved the flag for the West Coast and Much Music, especially in those early days. And he has some great stories, and he's going to join us. These were such great guys to work mm -hmm. with, and I'm really, really enjoying having them on Famous Lost Words. My buddy Mike Campbell, who's living in Halifax, has some great stories to share with us. You'll remember Mike from the Much Music series, Mike and Mike's Excellent Adventures. Our Canadian listeners will be very familiar with most of the artists we feature today. If you're listening to this show from outside of Canada, you may not know every performer, but we guarantee you will hear some amazing songs and stories, so stick with us. Now, let's take care of business. Taking care of business, Bachman Turner Overdrive from 1974. Last year, I had the chance to speak to Randy Bachman and Burton Cummings about the 50th anniversary of the song American Woman. Check that out in the archives. But I also asked Randy about the music scene in Winnipeg in the late 50s and early 60s. And Randy, being one of this country's great rock and roll storytellers, describes that city and the concert that changed his life. We go to a country music show. And we're seeing Ferlin Husky, Ray, uh, Ray Price, Katie Wells, you know, people like that. And on comes Jerry Lee Lewis. And he plays Crazy Arms and you win again, two country songs. And suddenly he starts a whole lot of shaking going on. And he's got this beautiful hair that every lock is in place like a wig, you know, like these British guys wear in court, like one of those wigs. And suddenly he jumps up and the piano stool falls over and his hair falls over his face. And he starts a whole lot of shaking going on. And the whole place is just aghast at like, what is this guy going crazy? What's he doing? Then he jumped on the piano. He played it with his feet. And the next day on the radio, I remember Doc Steen on CKRC radio. He said, this guy went crazy last night and tore up the Winnipeg auditorium. And he, and he played Shake All Over back to back twice. And it had a guitar solo in it. So I learned the guitar solo. And that was like rock. And then Elvis and Jerry Lewis was wild. And then when I get really get into it and I start to learn Elvis, somebody says to me, have you heard the black Elvis? And I said, what do you mean the black Elvis? Well, the guy that Elvis copies, who's that? It's Little Richard. Little Richard had Tutti Frutti. He had Ready Teddy. He had Rip It Up. That Elvis copied all his stuff. And I say, no, play me the Black Elvis. Then I heard Little Richard. And I went, oh, my God, this is incredible. So I was on my way. Then I got Chuck Berry and Bo Diddley. And the same thing's happening to Burton Cummings a few blocks away. And the same thing's happening to Neil Young on the other side of Winnipeg. We're all 
hit with this rock and roll that suddenly Winnipeg had three great radio stations there, but we also could get KXGO and Fargo and Grand Forks. We've got American stations. At night, we can get WLS in Chicago and WNOE in New Orleans. Winnipeg was at the top of the Great Plains. And then AM radio, you can get a 50, I used to get Wolfman Jock on a good night somewhere in Mexico and listen to this incredible music. So we all kind of got pollinated with the same pollen, you know, in Winnipeg. Randy Bachman chatting with me last year, talking about the great city of Winnipeg and the musical culture of the time. Streetheart from 1980 in the song Hollywood. Tom, Streetheart busted out of Regina in the late 70s. They released, get this, six albums in six years, four of which went platinum. Wow. The original members, Paul Dean and Matt Frenette, left to form a little group you've probably never heard of called Loverboy. <laughs> but Streetheart continues to this day, even after the death of singer Kenny Shields in 2018. Oh, yeah. The band were inducted into the Western Canadian Music Hall of Fame. And they certainly deserve that. I belong to a Facebook group, Christopher, that's devoted solely to Canadian music. And trust me when I say that Street Heart is a beloved band. In this clip, which goes all the way back to 1979, the guys talk about how much harder prairie bands had to work to get noticed. I, I would have to say that we, we do have an identity of our own. Being from the West, we're not influenced by a scene per se, you know. Like, say, in North America, you've got New York scene, you've got the L.A. scene and the Toronto scene. I mean, Manitoba and Saskatchewan isn't really the most happening place. So, uh, in a sense, it's a certain, there's a certain amount of down-to-earthness and uh, almost naivety. But yet, look what comes that. out of the prairies. Yeah, though. yeah. Oh, yeah, right. That's that's the whole thing. I think I think with 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 prairie uh, prairie bands and that they've had to struggle hard and work harder for it. So they appreciate it more. Maybe I don't know. That's Streetheart and Under My Thumb, their cover of the Rolling Stones song from 1979. And I just love Kenny Shield voice. What a loss for that band and their fans. Absolutely. Okay, let's keep going with more Canadian music. Oh, what a great song. 1980, Let's Shake by Teenage Head. Wow. You know, they're one of the foundational Canadian punk bands. And Teenage Head were made up of high school friends who formed in Hamilton in 1978, releasing a string of albums all the way up to 2008, the biggest of which was Frantic City from 1980. Yep. Now, perhaps their most notorious moment as a band was the riot at the Horseshoe Tavern at a show known as... The Last Pogo. Oh, that sounds wild. Yeah, I hear the guys talk about getting from the garage to the stage. How did the band come together? We just knew each other um, from high school, and we just got together from classes and got a band together. And so what, you played the played the high school dances then? And uh, Oh, no, we no, didn't yeah, get any no. work back then. No, we didn't play anywhere. We just knew each other. Uh, <laughs> it was just coming together. Yeah. It took a couple at years in the basement. Did it ever get discouraging at that point, wondering whether or not, or did you figure, well, what the hell, we got nothing to lose anyway? Let's. We never really got discouraged because it was fun what we yeah. were doing. We enjoyed it. And we always have. So that we, uh, you know, for a while we never took it seriously because we never got any work and we never made any money. But uh, that was about the most discouraging part. We wanted to play and we couldn't play anywhere. But like, wasn't not making any money. It was just no, not being just, able to play. Yeah, we just wanted to play someplace and nobody would let us play anywhere. Right. And that's when we. Uh, <clears throat> Heard about what was happening in Toronto and this whole punk scene at the underground, and uh, we made a couple trips here to see what was happening. And we saw that, you know, places were letting uh, bands like the music we play, letting them play in the clubs. So we uh, 
came over here. That's Teenage Head from about 1980, just as they were breaking out in conversation with my buddy Rick Ringer. And Christopher, you mentioned that infamous Horseshoe Tavern gig in 1978, but there's an even more infamous Teenage Head gig that happened on June 2nd, 1980 at the Ontario Place Forum in Toronto when a huge crowd showed up to see them play and fans were turned away. That didn't go over well. A riot ensued, and so did Teenage Head's notoriety, a very good thing for a punk band. In the next few days alone, Teenage Head sold an additional 10,000 copies of their album in Toronto alone. Let's keep going on this celebration of Canadian music. From 2006, one of my favorite songs from that year, that's Say It Right by Nelly Furtado. So many wonderful sources fed the sound that Nelly Furtado created to launch her brilliant career. Here she talks about how the diverse music that she grew up with helped form her sound. I first started singing when I was four, and I was actually performing in Portuguese before English because I had opportunities to at my um, Canadian, uh, I'm my my sorry Portuguese church, mm-hmm. uh, the congregation we were part of. So um, there'd be Portugal Day on, on every year, and you'd go and um, and sing a song, whatever the first song was a duet with my mother, sung in Portuguese. And from then, I started in school uh, doing musical theater and everything like that, playing instruments as well uh, in school for years and years. And growing up with pop music generally around the house, but then kind of going to Portugal in my teens and discovering more, um, maybe even Portuguese modern rock music and stuff like that that was coming out at the time. And then more recently, I guess I discovered Brazilian music, which clicked immediately for me because it's sung in Portuguese and I understood it. But I, I love the instrumentation because it's so um, diverse. This this exposure to various musical styles. Yep. Do you think that could have happened anywhere other than Canada? No, I don't, and I'm glad you asked that, <laughs> because I think that's one wonderful thing about Canada and living in Canada is it, it's a multicultural country, but everybody kind of preserves their cultural ties in a really nice way. It is really like a nice little patchwork quilt of uh, things, and people always ask me, well, Victoria is not exactly the most diverse city. How about, how did you come, come across all these different kinds of music, especially especially surprised by all my urban influences? Mm-hmm. Um, but growing up in Victoria, I guess because I'm first-generation Canadian, my parents are from Portugal, um, and they immigrated over to Canada. I bonded with other first-generation Canadians in my city, so I could be at uh, a Bangra dance or like a Latin dance or celebrating Chinese New Year or whatever on any given day, and it was a really great education for me. And that, that probably wouldn't happen anywhere else. This is our tribute to Canadian music on Famous Lost Words. We just heard from Victoria, B.C.'s Nelly Furtado. The list of artists from British Columbia is so very impressive. Sarah McLaughlin, Brian Adams, the Powder Blues Band, Prism, Strange Advance, the Poppy Family, 5440, Chilliwack, Spirit of the West, Doug and the Slugs, Trooper, and so many others. We'll hear from some of those in this episode. And we'll talk to the guy who waved the flag for Western Canada during the much years. That's Terry David Mulligan, who also talks about the concert that launched Brian Adams' career. Okay, Christopher, time to hit the dance floor. Let your backbone slide. Let your backbone slide. 1989, the first song by a Canadian hip-hop artist to go gold. Tom, Wes Williams, a.k.a. Maestro Fresh Wes, or just Maestro, is a towering figure in Canadian hip-hop. A few years ago, Wes told me about the struggles of being a rapper in Canada. Please excuse the phone quality of this clip, but we really think this is worth hearing. In Canada, we have a lot to overcome, like a lot of geography, a lot of lack of funding. 
and I wondered what what struggles did you have to overcome at the beginning of your career? Well, first of all, geographically, there was nobody uh, around. I had no reference point coming up. There's no point of reference for me to to look at in my country. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Everything was just uh, instinct. You know, in in uh, in conducting things, you said just because I'm from Canada doesn't make me an amateur. Was that a perception you had to fight early on, Wes? Yeah, we always had the underdog mentality coming up here because like there was no point of reference. We we, we were like ten years behind mainstream hip hop, like ten years behind. You got to think about it. You had um, Sugar Hill Gang's rappers, The Light, or Let Your Backbone Slide, which came out ten years after. Exactly, that's like Canada's version of, of rappers, The Light. That's Maestro Fresh West, a true Canadian hip-hop pioneer, and Let Your Backbone Slide. It remained the best-selling Canadian hip-hop single for almost 20 years. And the scene's come a long way. In fact, Drake was recently given the Artist of the Decade Award at the Billboard Awards for his domination of the charts in the 2010s. And speaking of domination, The Weeknd won 10 of the 16 Billboard Awards he was nominated for this year. It's all a powerful statement about the state of Canadian music and Canadian hip-hop and R&B. Coming up next on this all-Canadian version of Famous Lost Words, we'll crank up the amps as we play classic interview clips from Triumph and Loverboy. This is Famous Lost Words as we celebrate Canadian music. From 1977, that is one of my favorite cover versions of all time, Triumph with the Joe Walsh song, Rocky Mountain Way. Tom, one of the biggest acts in the country in the 70s and 80s was built on strong songwriting, or in this case, strong song choices, great musicianship, and really big shows. Oh, for sure. They had such a great power trio sound. The clip we have here is from Mike Levine, who seems to be the band's spokesman in many of the interviews that we have in the archives. Here he is talking about Canadian bands in the 70s getting lots of attention in the U.S. It's funny how much everybody loves Canadians, though. Canadian groups, Canadian music, that's all the radio people want to talk about. Yeah? You know, how uh, how the, the, the Canadian music scene is so fresh and the American music scene so stale. You know, it's, uh, you know, all, you know, they love everybody. You know, us, Rush, April Wine, Loverboy. Uh, you know, that's all they, all they want to talk about. That's Triumph on Famous Lost Words, talking about the popularity of Canadian bands in the early 80s. And here is one of the bands they were talking about. Nineteen eighty one, working for the weekend, Loverboy, and around the time of that song, Loverboy was absolutely on fire, dominating the Juno Awards. They had big tours across Canada and even bigger tours in the United States. Here they are talking about a harrowing encounter with fans in Seattle. Lots of fun. We had our, our limousines <laughs> completely thrashed in Seattle at a baseball game. We went and played one of the local FM stations there, and we couldn't get out of the field in time. And so the kids were jumping up and down on the roof and on the side and pounding in the glass and everything. And I was actually scared for my life because I was on the floor. And Mike and I were down on the floor <laughs> praying like this. And, and you could see the roof coming through. Oh, my God. And it's like, help. <laughs> Just somebody move this car quick. 
Oh, man. Matt Fournette from Loverboy talking to Rick Ringer about the absolute mayhem of being in Loverboy during their heyday in the 80s. This is Famous Lost Words. I'm Tom Jokic with Christopher Ward, and this episode is a special celebration of Canadian music and the musical history of this country. We want to acknowledge that this show represents the music of Canadian artists that have had top 40 mainstream success, which is just a small part of our overall history and culture. That being said, we will try to cover as many types of music from as many different regions as we can. A few days ago, I chatted with Winnipeg singer-songwriter Chantal Kreviazic, a friend of the show, and I spoke to Chantal about her favorite Canadian moments, and she spoke of two events— And because Chantal has Indigenous heritage, her experience was unique and nuanced, and I love the way she described this. Have a listen. It was when the Museum of Human Rights was finally going to be, they were breaking ground, and the Queen was doing a tour through Canada, and so she stopped off to um, lay one stone, I guess, the first stone or something like that. And that's really intense for me because, you know, I, again, my mom's side is indigenous people. And um, I grew up around people with who are visible minority. A lot of people don't know that about me, but like, I literally grew up in that. And it's very powerful later in my life to see, wow, it was just normal to me. You know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm. and, and so, you know, I have all this like, well, wait a second, like, what is the queen? And what are the royals? And why a monarchy? And huh? Like, what? Like, there's all these questions. But at the time, it was such an honor. I, I, I think something like 100,000 people showed up. Wow. And I, I performed with the Winnipeg Symphony Orchestra, which is a lovely orchestra. And then I introduced my hometown to the Queen of England. That's great. And that was neat. And then there was another time I did a show, and I'll try not to cry, but I played with Gord Downey at the same spot. And I think at that one, we got like 200000 like for War Child. And we just passed the hat, and we made about 250000 some crazy amount of money passing the hat around. Yeah. And it was just the most amazing day. We have footage of Gord. And I really enjoyed his company. That was the first day I started getting to know Gord, you know, and that was in yeah. the middle of color moving in still, and I had my little it girl moment, and like, I, w- I remember feeling like, because at that time I would stand up and play the guitar as well. So I can remember standing in front of my whole hometown, you know, at the Forks. And again, as an Indigenous derivative that I am, um, to be at the Forks, having that experience, I can imagine the suffering of my grandmothers, a piece Squaysish and Mesukumon Eskew, and everything that they went through, and the men that they were probably forced to marry and all these things. And now there I am standing in this spot and singing in front of all of these people. It's powerful inside. It's humbling and it's powerful. Mm -hmm. And it's also moving because it was with Gord. And again, it was the first time I sort of started making friends with him. And, um, you know, he'd already, him and my husband were already friends. And so it was really nice to just authentically pick up our own, our own friendship. And it's a wonderful memory. Oh man, absolute goosebumps from 1994 in this life, Winnipeg Chantal Kreviazic on Famous Lost Words. Now let's travel from Manitoba to Ontario.
and myself again, 1990 Blue Rodeo. One of the most enduringly popular bands in our history went elsewhere to get the inspiration they needed. Greg and Jim from Blue Rodeo talk about the influence of time spent in New York City on the formation of the band. You formed here in Toronto about two and a half years ago now. After the two of you, Greg and Jim, were in New York for a little while, why were you in New York? Um, well, just the mythology of New York is, uh, you know, it's just you sort of want to go there because everyone's been there from Dylan Thomas to Leonard Cohen to to Sid Vicious. Mm-hmm. So you just want to walk So it was around. booze and broads. Maybe. Yeah. Basically, like, yeah. It's the mecca of fun. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> want to see if you know, we too could self-destruct. Right, yeah. yeah. And so we didn't, the band had kind of fallen apart, so we decided to go down and see what kind of musicians we could hook up with in, in New York. And, mm-hmm. and, that, and going to New York really changed what kind of music we did. We did a very well, we different... We learned how to play. Yeah, well, <laughs> that's true, because the caliber of musician you meet is just a, incredible. The people that are just hanging around with no band to be in. Uh, the one drummer we uh, hooked up with was an Australian... Guy, well, he was an American who'd been in Australia for a long time. And he'd had a, a, a number one hit in Australia, for it, which was a, a really a big, big, uh, big thing. And then we um, came back to Toronto and we hooked up with even better musicians. Yeah, well, then we knew what we were looking for and the, the, the caliber um, was high. You came back to a Toronto music scene that had changed in your absence. Yeah, mm-hmm. it, it, it got a lot healthier. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, when we left, there was nowhere to play. The mm-hmm. uh, edge had just shut down, the horseshoe was shut down, uh, the Cameron wasn't, it didn't, wasn't around. You're right. So there was actually nowhere to play, so it was a little scary, especially when you... You were in a band. <laughs> and so when we got back, it was very healthy. And, uh, you know, we have to tell you, listeners, that uh, Ingrid's husband is our drummer, <laughs> Cleve Anderson. And, he's, so, he's, and that this, is, this is the magic of the band. It's right there. Right there. Yeah, yeah. And, he's uh, the man. So you called us, bothered <laughs> us one night. <laughs> Dr. Rhythm. All right. Here's the inevitable question about your name. Who named you Greg? No, no. <laughs> <laughs> All right, what about future plans? I know you've got some some gigs Change in this drummer. area. Change a drummer. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> I know you've got some immediate plans as far as uh, opening up for Katie Lang in this area. Um, what's going to be happening in the further future as far as touring? I think we're going to do uh, smaller uh, jaunts. We're going to go to out to the West Coast for, for 10 days or 10 dates. Um, we're going to do... I think there's eight dates with Katie Lang that take us from Montreal, Ottawa, and then around southern Ontario, Kitchener, London, Toronto, and Massey Hall. And uh, that'll be great. Greg and Jim from Blue Rodeo in conversation with the amazing Inger Schumacher in 1987. And there you have a brief history of the group, plus the reference to the growing Toronto music scene, and then their early days of touring the country, which would become a mainstay for them in decades to come. There's much more Blue Rodeo content in past episodes of Famous Lost Words. Help yourself. I love that clip, by the way. They're, they're joking around with Ingrid because, of course, at the time, Ingrid's husband, Cleve, was the drummer in Blue Rodeo. So yeah. there was a nice familiarity in that, in that clip. Oh, yeah. And Ingrid is one of my favorite people ever. Personally, it's just so great to hear these interviews with DJs I listened to over the years and then ended up working with. What a thrill. 
If you're enjoying this salute to Canadian music, don't forget we have many previous episodes of Famous Lost Words for you to binge on, including interviews with Rush, Joni Mitchell, Buffy St. Marie, The Guess Who, Alana Miles, Mark Jordan, Andy Kim, Bob Ezrin, Jan Arden, Glass Tiger, and many more. Up next, we travel to Montreal via Halifax with April Wine, and then over to Saskatoon with the Northern Pikes, plus the incredible Vancouver concert that announced the arrival of Brian Adams. This is a special Canadian edition of Famous Lost Words. All right, let's crank this up so we can hear it from Halifax to Montreal. Ooh, what a night. 1975, what a great rock song from April Wine. You know, they moved from Halifax to Montreal to chase an opportunity with Aquarius Records. What came next? One of the most distinguished careers in Canadian rock. Here, Gary Moffat from the band explained what the Canadian content regulations enacted by the CRTC meant to the band. April Wine were one of the first bands to uh, really benefit from the CRTC's 30% Canadian content ruling, I guess back in 1971. I would agree with that. Were you getting airplay much before the ruling? It sort of coincided with, um, with the CRTC, with the, the group's uh, initial records. So it, it's really is hard to tell whether they would have had success without the, the ruling or not. Uh, the group did very well from the very first record, so uh, I really can't say if that helped a lot, but uh, I think it did help everybody a lot. In the early days, it was kind of tough getting airplay. It was, but um, you can't lay the blame totally on, on uh, uh, the way things were because we were a Canadian band or anything mm-hmm. like that. I mean, I think the time is right for us now, whereas maybe in some ways it wasn't right then. And, uh, well, that's fine. That's Gary Moffat of April Wine talking about the Canadian content regulations which came into effect in Canada in 1971, mandating that radio stations um, had to play at least 25% Canadian content, Canadian music, in their musical rotation. That has increased over the years to the point where some radio stations have to play as much as 40% Canadian music. By the way, we have more April Wine interviews with leader Miles Goodwin, and I've been trying to get Miles on the show, but one way or another, we will have more wine before long. <laughs> I heard a voice inside say, She ain't pretty, she just looks that way. She ain't pretty, she just looks that way. The Northern Pikes from May of 1990. The Pikes may have seemed like a quirky indie band at the outset, but their music has sustained through the years. Just recently, Tom, actually back to 2017, there was a 30th anniversary release of Big Blue Sky, their debut LP, and they asked me to do something in between sets during their concert tour where they'd put me up on the screen and I would play videos from the same era as the album on Pikes TV. That's great. So Pikes TV it was. <laughs> I know. Yeah, they're a cool band. Mm. Jay Semko of the Pikes talks about always being glad to go back to Saskatoon. So Jay, tell me, how are things back in Saskatoon? Other than the fact that we know that it was a Guess Who song called Running Back to Saskatoon, which you keep doing, you haven't based here in Toronto yet. No, we're not based in Toronto. We're still Our home is still Saskatoon. Our friends and family are there, and that's where we always end up going back to. It's fun being in Toronto, though. While we're here, it's there's a lot more things to do entertainment-wise, et cetera, et cetera, and most of the music business is here. So it's fun coming back to Toronto, but it's always 
Saskatoon is our home, and that's where we're going to be from. And by the way, it's the largest growing city in Canada per capita. It, we found out right before we left there's 200,000 people there. So Saskatoon is growing, which is a good sign. Mm-hmm. I think the creative juices would probably flow a lot better there, too, because you are away from all the distractions that a city like Toronto could offer, I suppose. Oh, definitely. It makes, makes writing a lot easier. Like we find that we have time and space in our heads to be able to work on new material and get our sounds, you know, get the sound of the band down better without having the major distractions of being in a, in a place where there's so many things going on at once, which is generally what happens in Toronto. That's Jay Semko of the Northern Pikes from the late 80s on Famous Lost Words. From 1992, her biggest hit, Constant Craving, K.D. Lang. You know, Tom, both introspective and wildly entertaining is how I would describe K.D. Lang's music. And it's powered by one of the great voices of our time. In this clip from very early in her career, K.D. talks about maintaining her look despite negative reaction. I don't want to put you in any sort of a box, but you seem to be one of, not certainly the first, but one of the few uh, female artists in quote-unquote country music who writes uh, from, from a feminist point of view. Yeah, well, certainly I, I couldn't write anything, but um, I'm certainly emotionally a feminist, not, perhaps not physically or um, politically, but certainly I have feminist points of view because I'm a female. Right. You think that's part of the problem in in trying to break through the barrier of uh, the the uh, you know the people in control of uh, of country music basically? I think it's one of a, a small aspect of a conglomerate uh, problem with me. Mm-hmm. I think you know my image is probably the biggest one. My look, mm-hmm. um, but so you you kind of want to keep challenging people with your look, don't you? Well, I have really no. Um, I have really no choice. If I am to be honest and, and present myself as I feel comfortable, uh, I have to look like the way I do. I don't think it would be fair to anyone if I were to, to wear a, uh, you know my hair long and curled and, and wear tight little black clingy dress because, I'd, I don't. first of all, I think it would affect the way I sing, mm-hmm. and uh, I don't want that to happen. That clip is from about 1986 or 1987, about five years before Katie Lang became a superstar. But we Canadians knew about Katie Lang long before the rest of the world did and saw her morph from a kind of an irreverent punk country whirlwind to a more refined singer and great interpreter of songs. I actually saw her first show in Toronto, which helped her get uh, her record deal. She played the Brunswick Tavern, I think it was. And um, it was one of those things, there was a buzz beforehand. Everybody was talking about this person no one had ever seen before. And I went to one of the shows, and it was just breathtakingly brilliant and she was as i think the word you used was whirlwind yes uh it was just it was perfect because she just like careened from side to side on the stage and out into the crowd and what i remember as being the highlight of it musically was her version of an old 1960s pop song called johnny get angry She was amazing and still is. You know, I kind of think that song might have been number one when I was born. 
<laughs> I, I don't know if that's true or not, but I, I that kind of pops into my head. But anyway, don't look it up, anyone. Thank you. But, you know, her song, like her first hit was Turn Me Round. Let's play a little clip of that. Turn Me Round, Katie Lang. Oh my goodness, that song was insane. I think she did that on the Juno Awards, and it just tore the place down. She was such a breath of fresh air, but she was also so odd in her presentation that people didn't know what to make of her. But it's just such a great part of her legacy. Was this the Junos where she wore the wedding dress? I think it might have been, yes. <laughs> yeah. I, I interviewed her after that. Yeah, she, she's great. Okay, and now for something completely different. Because if you like the way you look that much, oh baby, you should go and love yourself. That's Justin Bieber, a song co-written by Ed Sheeran, from 2015, Love Yourself. Well, Tom, he was irresistible at the time of this interview clip coming up, but few would have bet on the career longevity of one Justin Bieber. A 15-year-old Biebs talks about getting his career going and what really motivates him. Straight out of Stratford, man, you look taller on TV. Justin Bieber, how you doing? What's up, dude? <laughs> so, uh, how's, how's things going for you right now? Uh, really, 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 really great. I'm very happy to, where, to be where I am right now. 15 years old. You started singing, I hear, uh, only about three years ago. Yeah. Self-taught. Taught yourself guitar, which you played for us. Uh, also piano, t- trumpet, drums. Yeah. What made you decide three years ago that uh, you wanted to do this music thing? Well, it just kind of like... I started playing drums when I was about two, so I always wanted. To, I always knew I wanted to be. I wanted to perform. I always loved to be in the spotlight. I love. I always loved attention, so... I always knew I was meant to do this, but I didn't know what I was going to do. So um, I, I, I'd just sing around the house. But um, when I was about 12, I entered a singing competition for fun. And uh, uh, my friends and family that couldn't make it wanted to see me. So uh, my mom and I posted videos on the Internet of uh, me singing. And um, and I, I was then found by my manager, Scooter Braun, on the Internet. Did you ever think, like ever imagine when you're sitting at home in Stratford that uh, you'd be where you are now? No. Yeah. And uh, I'm sure a lot of girls want to know if Justin Bieber has a girlfriend. And no, I do not. I'm single. Probably for the best. Single and ready to mingle. (laughs) (laughs) You know, Lady Gaga says to be a successful pop star, you have to sacrifice everything for music, including uh, boys or for your case, girls. Girls. Yeah. Um... I don't sacrifice them completely. (laughs) I mean, I take out a few girls every now and then. That's Justin Bieber from 2009 when he was just 15 years old (laughs) and not yet a household name. So it's so interesting because he did not have any big hits, especially on the radio at that time. And we were asked by the record company to interview him. And that was Richie Favalero on the interview. So we say yes. And we had no idea that he was going to blow up into the star that he became. And you can hear much more of that chat with Justin in episode 112, which also features John Lennon and Def Leppard. And there you have famous lost words in a nutshell. Oh, bless us. Still to come on this special Canadian episode of Famous Lost Words, we go from coast to coast with a couple of much music alumni who tell some great stories about this nation's music. Plus, the historic Toronto concert that even made Rush jealous. (laughs) That's all next.
Welcome back to Famous Lost Words. I'm Tom Jokic with Christopher Ward. If you're a big fan of Canadian music, and I'm sure you are, don't forget we have many previous episodes of Famous Lost Words for you to binge on. They include interviews with Gowan, Gino Vanelli, Alessia Cara, The Spoons, Tom Cochran, Steppenwolf, Kim Mitchell, Katie Lang, Sarah McLaughlin, Sass Jordan, Corey Hart, Leonard Cohen, The Band, and many others. Christopher, time now to hop on Zoom with one of your buddies from Much Music, Terry David Mulligan, an absolute legend in the business. Terry, welcome to Famous Lost Words. <laughs> Thank you so much. So, Terry, before we talk about the first time you saw Brian Adams on stage, I want to talk about Much West, the West Coast wing of Much Music. How did it all get started for you? I was uh, hosting uh, Good Rockin' Tonight for CBC Television, and they didn't think they had a management didn't think they had a hit there. They were sort of laissez-faire about it, but I knew it was a hit. We could tell from the response it was a hit. And um, I did it for a couple of years, and then uh, much music had kicked in. And I was in Toronto doing something, maybe interviews or something. And I remember my wife standing beside me in the hotel that we were in, and I phoned Moses Neimer, and I said, he said, who are you? I said, I'm Terry David Mulligan, and I'm kicking your ass on the West Coast. <laughs> That's the way to speak his language, I think. And you should know who I am, because I'm absolutely wailing on you guys on the West Coast. And you can't call yourself the nation's music station and only be talking to Toronto, okay? You ha- and, and Vancouver happens to be winning all the Junos right now, Adams for one, lover boy. You need me to represent the West Coast and only the West Coast on your network. And then you got, then you got uh, Canada's, uh, the nation's music station. Um, you were around in Vancouver at the beginning of Brian Adams' career. Yeah. And I'm curious what your earliest recollections are, you know, when he was just the kid from North Van, a kid with a lot of ambition and a huge amount of talent yeah. that sort of pushed him over the top. But what are your earliest memories of, of, of meeting up with Adams? Well, the very earliest is uh, the P&E Garden Auditorium, which is uh, was a Quonset hut. Uh, you're going to have to help me with the names here because um, there was a band and they had one hit and it was a boogie. The, the lead singer split to do a solo career. Oh, we're talking about Sweeney Todd. Sweeney Todd. Yes, there you go. And so Brian became the substitute lead singer for Sweeney Todd. And it was his first big gig. Of course, he was doing somebody else's songs. But he sang his ass off. He was all over the stage. He was just unbelievable on stage. And um, uh, he, everybody loved him. It was a Sweeney Todd gig, but it was Brian Adams that was carrying the load. And I interviewed him. I went backstage afterwards. He was just drenched. And, uh, and my impressions were, this guy's got it. He knows he's got it. He has a plan. And he actually said to me, if you can't help me, get out of the way. I'm on a mission, and I got to get – this is just the start of it. He was cocky as hell, but he knew he had the goods. He had a voice. Yes. He had a bag full of songs that nobody had heard, and he was ready to go. Get this, And this was the starting gun. And This was his first break. I don't know how long he hung. It, I don't think it was longer than maybe a year off he went as, as Brian Adams. That was a little tougher gig for Brian, getting people to pay attention and, and take him seriously. But um, he, when he hooked up with Bruce Allen, then everything fell into place. And his idea was, give me the opening spot to your um, Northwest 
uh, concert tour to Journey or ZZ Top, and I got a kid for you. And this is a kid. Here it is. Here the, here's the demos. And slowly but surely, they came around. Uh, and uh, Bill Ham was the guy who managed mm. ZZ Top in the early days and produced them. And he gave him a big break by just saying, yeah, come and do the American Dates too as well, you know. Brian knew he needed Bruce, and Bruce knew he needed Brian. Still to this day, that entire partnership is on a single handshake. Thanks so much. Terry David Mulligan chatting with us from Vancouver Island. Always full of great stories, and I can't wait to hear more. Thanks, Tom. <laughs> Thank you, buddy. Okay, we're leapfrogging all over the country now, from British Columbia to Scarborough, Ontario. Would eat craft in. Of course we would. We just eat more. From 1992, Bare Naked Ladies and If I Had a Million Dollars. You know, Tom, here it almost sounds like Ed Roberts and the Bare Naked Ladies still kind of marvels at their unlikely success. Here we go. Ed of BNL tells the colorful story of the band's beginnings. We put this band together. We toured across the country in a van a couple of times. We were doing all the university clubs and mm-hmm. we were having a blast, you know, and as I said, I, I don't think there was any expectation that it was long-term. Sure. Because it was, you know, we got turned down by every major label. Like, so we didn't think we had a career. Mm-hmm. We just knew we were having a really good time. Um, so we kept doing it. Yeah. And then we started selling out bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger places. Right. So when we finally we ended up signing a record deal um with Seymour Stein and and Reprise in America um and it, it everything got really legit really quickly <laughs> but we were still in that mindset we were still 21 year old kids you know having a blast yeah so it, it was sort of this incongruous thing it kind of didn't make sense that we sold out massey hall four nights in a row Mm -hmm. you know i remember the guys from rush sent us a bottle of champagne uh and they they said guys it was only supposed to be three nights (laughs) because because they had held the previous record oh that's amazing at three so so there i was you know just a few years after being in a cover band that played 25 rush songs right then I'm getting a bottle of champagne from the Rush guys. That's amazing. Congratulating me. So it, it was kind of surreal. And and I don't think in our heads, in a lot of ways, we hadn't really shifted gears yet. Mm-hmm. We were still that scrappy group of guys in a van. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we were like the number one selling band in the country. That's Ed Robertson from Bare Naked Ladies talking to me in 2019 after I asked him about their historic four-night stand at Toronto's Massey Hall in the early 90s, right off the success of their debut album, Gordon. And I was there, and there was something truly electric and magical about those shows. Speaking about electric and magical, um, Ed's daughter and my daughter graduated from the same school on the same night, and I was sitting behind him at the awards, and I got to tell you, he wept. Oh, I wept. That's great. Uh-huh. That's great. <laughs> this is a special Canadian edition of Famous Lost Words. I'm Christopher Ward with Tom Jokic. Who's next, Tom? Why, it's Mr. Bubbly himself. Let me go home. I've had my run. Baby, I'm done. I gotta go home. 
That's Hall Michael Bublé, one of his first early big hits from 2005. Tom, here's another case of talent winning out mixed with a shot of unwavering ambition. Michael Bublé talks about the importance of Paul Anka and Bruce Allen in his career. Paul Anka was quite instrumental in your career at the beginning, right? Yeah. Can you relate that story to us, how yeah, you absolutely. met him and how he absolutely. helped? Absolutely, yeah. I, I met Foster through Brian Mulroney, of course. Um, Foster said he would never sign me to Warner Brothers nor produce my work, and then I drove him nuts, and he softened up and said, all right, listen, if you go you know, raise some money, I'll, I'll make a demo. So I went home to Vancouver. I raised... You know, about 300000 bucks, and I came back, and I was opening for Jay Leno in Vegas, and David said, listen, Anka, I want you to meet Anka. So we met Anka, and Anka said, this kid is great, listen to me sing, and, and he said, what do you need? And Foster said, we, you know, we, we could use some capital to, to make this record. And so Paul said, done, you know, and came up with the money. And um, mm. what ended up happening was Warner Brothers then said, no, you know what, we want the kid, we'll sign him. Mm-hmm. So, of course, then Anka's money we didn't need, but I, I felt that, to discard him would be crazy of me because he's an amazing man. And uh, so he became the executive producer of the first record. And uh, to this day, he's just a great friend. And um, we, we talk hockey a lot. And uh, I think he feels the same way about what's going on. And, uh, and um, he's just, it's, it's, you know, for me to be able to look up to somebody like Paul, who's, mm-hmm. um, who's an icon and uh, who's such a great writer, entertainer, uh, an artist, and has had a career that spanned five decades. And it's just, he's great for me to learn from. Mm-hmm. And, uh, he's a good man. You've been surrounded by great people, Paul Anka and David Foster, of course, and, yeah. and Bruce Allen's doing your manager. Bruce Allen, I couldn't, you know, I, and I promise you right now, I could not have. For those of you who don't know about Bruce Allen, Bruce is a tough guy, and uh, he's manages myself and, and Brian Adams and Martina McBride and Anne Murray, and of course Anne. I mean, look, I just was on Billboard the other day, and Anne is back, back on the top fifty mm-hmm. and what have you. Yeah. And I was so thrilled for her and for Bruce, and I couldn't have done this without him. This with any other manager. Um, this never would have worked. Uh, I, you know, I maybe would have had some luck in Canada and America, but Bruce has a vision uh, for international, and uh, he believes it's a big world, and uh, I, I can't ever thank him enough. And he's a it. quiet man. He's Bruce. a quiet man. <laughs> Bruce Allen. Bruce Allen here. He has, a, he has a radio show. He has a radio show. He does. And, and, you know, I used to drive around, and I used to want to beat him up because I, I couldn't stand this guy. So when David Foster actually said, listen, there's this manager, and he wants to meet you, I said, I'm not meeting with this guy. I don't want to meet with this. He's a jackass. I'm not meeting with him. But he turned out to be this. He's a teddy bear. He really is. He yeah. seems like... You know, he seems like a monster, but he's really, uh, he's not, he's not as tough as he seems. That's funny. He's a good manager. That's he's for sure. a great manager. <laughs> that's Michael Bublé from 2005 in conversation with Roger Ashby and Marilyn Dennis. Laugh track provided by me in the background. And there's a lot nice. in that clip, including the number of people that it takes to help launch a career. He is so charming and yes. funny, man. Yeah. What a great interview subject he is. Absolutely. And he's very funny in concert. Although I think that sometimes he goes too far with his humor. That's not in my opinion. That's in the opinion of the several dozen people who walk out of every one of his shows. He's acknowledged this. He kind of goes blue every once in a while. And it's really funny because after his show, he'll ask his manager, so how many people left tonight? (laughs) They're expecting (laughs) him to be this very kind good-natured guy and he is he's fantastic but every once in a while his jokes get kind of blue and they're they're there with their kids and they're going well we didn't come here for that we came here for the nice songs right (laughs) so it's a really it's a great and very interesting side to michael buble that's for sure this is famous lost words we're celebrating canadian music let's go to 1983 
That's Rise Up, the Parachute Club from 1983, a great Canadian song. You know, out of a richly diverse Toronto music scene in the early 80s, Parachute Club represented so much that was new and adventurous about Canadian music. Lorraine Segato talks about her hopes for a young Parachute Club. The one thing that I hope that the album makes clear, especially around Rise Up, is that um, it doesn't exclude anyone, you know? Like, we all find our ways of doing what we need to do in this world to feel good, you mm-hmm. know? And our, the particular thing that Billy and I share in common is that, well, we have, like, a vision, and we really, we sort of want to go through life and do as much as we can in that. And it's not something that we want to ram down anyone else's throat, but that we have the chance and the freedom, because this is a democratic society, to to say those things, you know, mm-hmm. without sort of it looking like everyone else has to feel the same Without thing. preaching, without exactly. it coming across as preaching. You know, right? yeah. and, but that we do get the chance to do that just as other people get the chance to express their opinions, you know. Mm-hmm. So, that, so like, I'm just hoping that the album draws people in too, you know, whether or not they agree with it. The idea that you could write a song, record it, and have it played around the world to different cultures, different languages, and then go and play in these different places to me is one of the most exciting opportunities that we have yeah mm-hmm. it's like it's expanding on the community base you know i mean you never want to lose it like i no matter what love i love queen street because those people have supported us it's not even just queen street but the political people that have followed us around you know and uh, i sort of want to take the love that i feel about those people and and take it around the world you know it's because it's, it's a sign of hope for us to be able to reach so many people. That's Lorraine Sagato from Parachute Club in the very early days of that band. By the way, cool song fact, Rise Up was produced by Daniel Lanois. Mm-hmm. And as you said, Christopher, they were a very original Canadian band, and they were one of the first to have a wildly diverse lineup and progressive politics, and also to incorporate world music influences into their sound. And also... Rise Up is just a great party song. Oh, a timeless piece of work. Love that song. Yeah. Put your head on my shoulder Hold me in your arms Baby One of the very earliest Canadian hits from 1959. That's Paul Anka and Put Your Head on My Shoulder. An artist who can arguably be called Canada's first teen pop star. Paul Anka also became one of the country's most successful songwriters as well. He talks about being a kid in the music biz. At 13, that was a, a time in my life, I think in anybody's life, when you pursue something that's um, a little abnormal but means a lot to you. You know, I think failure, we're not really conditioned to failure, at least at that point in society. Uh, at 19, I wasn't a millionaire. I was making a lot of money. I think I made a lot of people millionaires. Being the fact that I was so young, I got ripped off very easily. So it kind of made great press the fact that uh, somebody so young and uh, obviously being from Canada made it a little more appetizing because we, we at that time were living in the shadow of the great elephant to the south. And uh, consequently, it was you know, refreshing that somebody out of 
this foreign land of a sense was making it, you know. Okay, so I'm guessing that that clip is from the mid-70s when Paul Anka was enjoying his comeback with songs like Having My Baby and I Don't Like to Sleep Alone. <laughs> Perhaps not our favorites, but you cannot argue I know, I'm glad he was enjoying his comeback because I was not. <laughs> <laughs> you know the best parts of those songs? When they end? <laughs> but the female voice on that was by a woman named Odia Coates, and she was All right, an exceptional I'm- singer. And I just love her voice in those songs, even if I don't particularly love the songs. But, you know, you can't argue with his success. And those early hits from the 50s and early 60s, they were so well written. What song did he write that Buddy Holly had a hit with? Doesn't matter anymore. Yeah, yeah. Great That's song. That's a great song. Great song. No, you know, he's, he's, a, he's a massive songwriter. Absolutely. Yes, for sure. So, Christopher, I need you to listen to this. This is a song called Toot Sweet by Paul Anka from 1959. Okay. okay, so listen to this. I don't know it. Oh, you will. Listen. Oh, Christopher, what do you think of that? That's the Tonight Show theme from <laughs> from years earlier. I uh, yeah, I hardly know what to say about that, actually, Tom, but uh, it's the most excellent theme, um, and I've enjoyed it on a on a nightly basis. <clears throat> Very yes. good. So Paul Anka repurposes that song, Toot Sweet, and turns it into the Tonight Show theme, which must have earned millions of dollars for Paul. That's so interesting. Oh, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah he, he pocketed a few on that, baby. you go a veritable travelogue of prairie towns running back to saskatoon by the guess who from 1972 you know it would not be a celebration of canadian music without burton cummings early in this episode we talked to randy bachman about winnipeg and last year i asked burton about the same thing why was winnipeg such a hotbed for music in the early 60s um i can explain part of the reason i think we had uh, the best AM radio in Canada. We had CKY, which was 50,000 watts clear channel. We had CKRC and CJOB before it went all talk. We had three major stations competing, competing for the audience. And way back then, there was only about 400,000 people in Winnipeg. So each of those stations was loading their guns all the time. And also CKY, they had a habit of hiring these big booming voice guys from the States. They brought up uh, Jimmy Darren from from Cleveland and Mm -hmm. Mark Parr from Florida. And and, our friend Daryl B. Yes, and Daryl B., one Mm -hmm. of the great radio voices and one of my great friends of all time. Yeah. And at at one time, there were... Well over a hundred bands in Winnipeg, local bands, working every Friday, Saturday, and most Sunday nights, all working every week. A hundred bands. Imagine that. I can't. In a city of less than half a million people, a hundred working bands. The the music scene in Winnipeg was spectacular. And that's that's why I think so much songwriting potential was bred in the city at that time and and randy and i we were fortunate enough to be raised on that radio where you would hear everything from elvis to the beatles 
to Bo Diddley and Chuck Berry to Frank Sinatra to Herman's Hermits to we heard it all and that crept into the songwriting for sure There's the great Burton Cummings from last year talking to me about the Winnipeg music scene from the 1960s, one that inspired so many other artists. Now, let's go to Toronto. From 1982, the band is called Toronto and your daddy don't know. Tom, the story of this band also is an odd one in some ways. Yeah. Because some of the members did not want to record what became a smash for an American hit act. You'll remember the song by Heart, What About Love? Oh, let's hear it. What about love? Don't you want someone to care about you? Okay, so what's the story there? What's the connection between that, between Heart and Toronto? Well, the song What About Love, which was written by members of Toronto, uh, was recorded by Heart. It was a big comeback hit for them. Yeah. But members of Toronto, prior to that, didn't want to cut the song. Oh, wow. Well, I guess it all worked out for the writers of the song, and uh, because it's a Canadian content hit for Heart, it gets played a lot on Canadian radio to this day. By the way, just a little footnote on Toronto. Before they were Toronto, and before Mm -hmm. Holly joined, they used to be called Rose, Brian Allen's band. And I remember seeing them at a club in Peterborough where I was going to college, and they were fantastic. I just have really good memories of that band. That's great. And you know what's so weird is the lead singer of the band Toronto, Hollywoods, is from North Carolina. And you'll hear yes. <laughs> you'll hear her accent in this. Because <laughs> when I started listening to this, I'm going, who is that? Like, who's the woman with the southern accent <laughs> from Toronto? And I go, that must be Hollywoods. Right. And I look it up, and her real name is, I think, Annie. But they called her Holly. For obvious reasons, it's a great stage name. So in this clip from around 1979, she talks about being accepted in their adopted city of Toronto. What was it? Must have been around 76, 77 making appearances? Here in Canada? Yeah, yeah it was in Toronto about that bars. time. The band right. was called Say Us. Mm-hmm. And uh, we started out in Toronto about 76 and mm-hmm. stayed up here for almost a year. And we got uh, really familiar with the Toronto scene, the Ontario bar circuit was was one of our our main areas to play so we got really really hip to the ontario um music scene and got to know a lot of people and it uh i fell in love with the city Mm -hmm. so i kept coming back through different bands it was very easy for me to to adapt to the name because i i'd gotten so used to the city and i knew so many people up here that it was pretty easy for me to adapt to it. I was hoping that the city would feel the same way about us, Mm -hmm. (laughs) and they did. Hollywood's had such a great sound, and even though those Toronto hits weren't really huge, I know about half a dozen of their songs very well from the AM radio days in the early 80s. Loved it. Right, yeah. This is a special Canadian edition of Famous Lost Words. I'm Christopher Ward with Tom Jokic. Okay, Tom, where are we headed now? Christopher, let's travel down east. From Cape Breton Island, Nova Scotia, that's the song that catapulted the Rankin family onto the national stage. Fare thee well, love, from 1992. When we spoke to the Rankins in 1998, they talked about their place 
in the East Coast music scene. You know, a few years ago, you guys were pretty much, you had your own little niche, and now it's suddenly the East Coast music scene seems to have exploded so much, it's a little crowded in your niche now. Do you feel like this is your chance to kind of make a, you know, kind of cut away from the crowd a bit? I, I think we've always just done our own thing. I think there's people that have come and gone that have maybe tried similar things. Um, there's definitely people in the East Coast that have made a mark with strictly Celtic music, but we've never been totally Celtic. It's been a hybrid of a lot of different styles of music, and we've never made any bones about that. That's the, that's the way the group is. And, uh, I think we, we just keep doing what we do, and every record we branch out in some other direction and try try a few new things. That's Heather and Jimmy Rankin speaking to us in 1998. More about the East Coast music scene in a few minutes when we talk to Mike Campbell in Halifax, who has some great stories to tell, I promise you that. Now, we travel from the East to the West. The blues band's cooking and the drummer's burning down. Doing it right on the wrong side of town. That's Doing It Right on the Wrong Side of Town, Powder Blues Band from 1980. Love it. Tom, along with Downchild, Powder Blues are one of the biggest names in Canadian bands that deliver the blues live year after year. In this clip from the early 80s, band leader Tom Lavin talks about working with Prism and how that gave way to the Powder Blues Band. Well, we first started out, uh, Willie McCalder, who's a keyboard player in the band, had a gig as a solo piano player in a little tiny bar in Gastown, the old area of Vancouver, a place called The Spinning Wheel. And uh, he decided he was tired of playing solo and called my brother and said, you want to come play bass? And my brother called me and said, you want to come jam on guitar? At this point, you were with Prism, right? Yeah, sort of in a transition period, I guess. I was doing a lot of freelance session work uh, at the time, too, which is how my original involvement with Prism came about. Uh, they had decided to do one of my tunes, and uh, called me in on the session to play guitar. And I just, I played guitar on the album uh, and some bass, and uh, the album came out and was a hit, and they didn't have any band. There was no prism, <laughs> so to speak. It was basically studio musicians. And they called me up frantically saying, we have a hit record, would you go on the road with us? And so I was on the road with prism for a while, but I had never really uh, fully intended to make that my, uh, my full-time occupation. So uh, as that was as I was phasing out of that, uh, the Powder Blues came into being. We started off at a four, as a four-piece in this little band, in this tiny club in Vancouver called Spinning Wheel, and uh, we were just playing. I'd been brought up in Chicago, my brother too, and we'd always play the blues. And this piano player Willie uh, McCalder had been just a real blues aficionado and had all the all the records. And uh, so we wound up knowing a whole bunch of tunes between us. And uh, that was the beginning of Powder Blues. That was about June of 78. Thirsty Ears Powder Blues from 1981. And that's the great Tom Lavin from Powder Blues Band in the early 80s talking about that band. We run 1985 Strange Advance as we celebrate Canadian music. Tom, Vancouver wasn't known for producing new wave bands in the early 80s in particular, but one that made a difference was Strange Advance. Daryl Crom talks about forming that band and getting a little bit of help from one Canadian superstar. So all of a sudden, you just kind of burst onto the music scene? What's Bur the musical background of the band? Um, Well, let me see. Drew and I played together in early bands around Vancouver. Nothing of any note that would mean anything to any listener. Um... 
played uh, on various bands for a while, then we separated, uh, but still kept in touch writing and uh, demoing because we had a common musical kind of th- of compatibility. I kept playing. Um, along the way, I, I bumped into Paul and played in some bands with Paul. Uh, and then at, so, at one point, we uh, became Brian Adams' backup band for his first ah, album. So that's how you got Brian Adams to reciprocate and come back and do some backup vocals it's with like, you. Pay them dues, Brian. <laughs> it's, um, yeah, we did the first tour promoting his first album. Um, came back into town, um, found out that Bruce Fairburn, the producer, was looking for a different kind of project to do. Um, and we said, well, our demos is as good as anybody else's demos. So we got that to him. He liked it. Uh, we had we talked about it and had meetings and stuff and worked worked things out. And he took it around to, to record people and Capital picked up on it. And there we are. Once again, that's We Run, Strange Advance from 1985. That gets played a lot to this day. And just a quick shout-out to the interviewer there. Her name is Elaine McDonald, and I touched base with her on Facebook, and she's so excited that uh, we ran a clip of her, and I can't wait to play more of her stuff. Cool. Tom, is it possible for a guy with 16 albums to his credit in little over 30 years to be underappreciated? Colin James is one of the most naturally gifted artists in this country, recognized as a singer, songwriter, and of course a guitar player, but he's also an electric performer. Here he tells interviewer Richard Maxwell about getting hooked up with the late Stevie Ray Vaughan. When did you decide that that you'd move toward blues? Uh, To tell you the truth, when I saw James Cotton uh, when I was about 17 in in Winnipeg, Mm -hmm. and uh, he blew me away. I'd never seen anyone... uh, anyone play like that before I'd heard it on record but I'd never seen a live blues player like Cotton come out and, and kick like he did there was 22,000 people there and he went nuts and uh, met my first girl that night too so it was a package deal <laughs> so it was a big night for you it changed your life big big night man you know it was great tell me how did you get hooked up with Stevie Ray Vaughan I did a show uh, in jeez uh, where was that Saskatoon and Regina and Edmonton and Calgary and he um, he liked the way I played so he got me on stage with him then, and then took me down to the stage with him, and I was a guest on uh, some Midwest shows, just with his band. It's got to be a dream come true. It was fun. It was really nice. It was good. You must have been nervous, though. Okay. I mean, he's a he's a big guy. Yeah, it was it was pretty intense. You know, I'd have to have a couple belts playing this stage. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was intense. We had Johnny Copeland and Stevie and me all at the same the same time at the end of the night, and we trade solos, and it was you know a real thrill for a, for someone you know a kid from Canada, you know. Colin James from 1990 and just came back, and that's him talking with my buddy Richard Maxwell in 1988, around the time of Colin's first album, as we celebrate Canadian artists. And now for something completely different. So high that I could almost see eternity. You needed me. You needed me. That's Anne Murray from 1978 and You Needed Me and you know Christopher I cannot lie I love that song and I love that performance you know what it's a classic song and yeah. it's a classic performance I'm, I'm with you all the way there buddy yeah you know I think it's if if possible this is hard to imagine the impact that Anne Murray made in Canada and around the world as a kind of ambassador for Canadian music is actually being appreciated more as time goes by here she talks about what was missing in the Canadian music business at the time I think the Canadians have the same opportunity of making it. I, 
But I do feel one of the biggest problems we have in Canada is lack of management. Now, I can name you at least 20 people um, who are as talented as anyone down here. And I'm talking about, in the, you know, very important people in the business and people who have been very successful. And uh, without proper management, they're not going to be able to do anything. It's just, and then on the other hand, I feel that there are some people who uh, will make it and some people who won't. Some people don't have the proper temperament. Some, I don't know what it is, but I know management would sure help a lot. I was fortunate in, in many ways in that my first record was a smash in the U.S., so naturally that was that, you know. Not that it has, I haven't had to work hard, because I have. And that's the other thing. It requires a lot of hard work. But I think that, that management is, is the crux of the whole thing. That's Anne Murray from the 70s talking about the Canadian music business as we celebrate Canadian music on Famous Lost Words. From L.A. to New York, from New York to L.A. From 1976, this was a big hit from New York to L.A., Patsy Gallant. I have not heard that in a long time. I gotta tell you, Patsy Gallant covered a lot of ground musically over a very long career, but will likely always be remembered as Canada's disco queen for that song, From New York to L.A., which, by the way, was a reworking of a Quebecois classic, Mon Pays. Yes, I wonder how they felt about that. Now, she had deep roots in Quebec music, but Mon Pays by Gilles Vigneault, I believe, Uh, Mon Pays is a classic kind of deeply felt song uh, about Quebec, and I'm just wondering how they felt about a disco-fied version of that song, even though the lyrics are, I don't believe, are in any way related. It's a good question because, Mm -hmm. you know, sometimes we songwriters can be very proprietary about our work and we don't want it messed with, but... Other times you just go, oh gosh, I'm just not going to listen to the radio, send me the check. Exactly right. (laughs) So cynical, right? (laughs) Uh. Okay, so listen to this clip from Patsy Gallant from the 70s, from around the time of From New York to L.A., and listen to how this is almost like a mission statement from her. I have great hopes, and I'm very proud to be a Canadian. And I was arguing with somebody last night again that they're trying to tell me that I have to go to the States to make it. I'm sorry. I'm very sorry. When I go to the States... I'm going to be going there as a Canadian, and I'm going to be going there being somebody, not just a local somebody little girl they found somewhere in a little country called Canada. It's not like that anymore. We are important, and we are on the map now, and we mean something, and there's a lot of talent here, and I'm very happy to be part of it. You know, even though she's best known in English Canada for a few disco hits in the 70s, Patsy Gallant had a career that lasted the better part of 50 years, including French albums, English albums, and stage work. That's for sure. She's had quite the career. Okay, kids, buckle up. We're going to crank it up to 11. Their first massive hit, How You Remind Me, Nickelback from 2001. I know. They're a punchline, whether we or they like it, but there are some very good reasons why Nickelback gained the popularity they did. How does Nickelback go down in Japan? Well, here's Chad Kroger explaining. Now, Chad, you and Nickelback have toured the world. What is the place that has surprised you the most where they didn't know a word of English, but the fans knew every word 
to a Nickelback song, and they were singing along. Uh, Regina. <laughs> <laughs> You're so bad. <laughs> <laughs> kidding, I'm kidding, kidding. <laughs> Jeez, uh, Tokyo. That's interesting, Tokyo? It's, it's pretty strange because in between songs, there's a roar, they make noise, they clap, and then they get completely silent yeah. because obviously their English isn't that good. And then they stand, and then they all just, you know, they're, they're so attentive, you know, just because any syllable that comes out of your mouth, they want to know what's going on, right? All right, so tell us what fans can expect next week when you're here at the Molson Amphitheater. No, we're going to do the same thing we always do. Jump up there, scream out some uh, Nickelback songs, uh, try to singe all of our body hair off by lighting 40-foot flames, and, uh, and make sure everybody leaves with a smile on their face. That's Taylor Kay chatting with Chad Kruger of Nickelback. And I can't say I'm a huge fan, but Chad really knows how to construct a very catchy rock song. We need to find, just for equal opportunity's sake, a rabid Nickelback fan and get them on the show. <laughs> it's only fair. Okay. Well, it might take a while, but once we do, once we find one, then we will get them yep. on the show. <laughs> All right. Sorry about that. Okay. At this point, we need to talk about the Maritimes. Let's switch over now to a Zoom call. Christopher, take it away. This is Famous Lost Words. I'm Christopher Ward, along with my co-host and the creator of the show, Tom Jokic, and our very special guest today. Ah, uh, it takes me back to the golden days of much music. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Mike Campbell. Mike. <laughs> hey, Chris. Mike, I'm just looking at your accomplishments and adventures. Uh, okay, I'm going to list just a few of them because we don't have all day. But you did the luge and bobsleigh at Olympic Park in Calgary. You've gone skydiving in Salmon Arm, bungee jumping in Nanaimo. You built an igloo in Iqaluit. You've skied the Whistler Glacier. You rode a dog sled in the Northwest Territories. You've gotten screeched in in Newfoundland. You rode miniature motorcycles in Moncton. You've sung on stage with Jim Cuddy and uh, Tom Cochran. And you've flown with the snowbirds over Niagara Falls on Canada Day. So it's amazing they haven't given you the odor of, the odor of Canada. <laughs> the order of Canada by now. And all of this, Tom, all this was so that he didn't have to show up in the studio in Toronto. That is exactly correct. Exactly right. That's right. That is and it correct. worked. I was the co-host of one of the most Canadian shows of all time, and certainly on Much Music, and uh, um, it gave us a blank check. Well, blank check, my ass. It gave us, it gave us, it gave us carte blanche to basically do what we wanted, and uh, we took full advantage of that, 100%. Christopher and I have spoken about kind of when Much first hit, and then we've spoken to people like Sass Jordan, about when their videos first hit and how it was instant. The recognition came instantly. What kind of bands like that maybe had a little local following, even if that local following was only a couple of blocks away from one club, um, who then kind of blew up? I mean, would that have happened with Sloan, for example? Oh, yeah. It 100% happened for Sloan. Um, you know, in the Vancouver side of things, it happened very quickly for Matthew Good. Uh, you know, bands that we consider to be, you know, Canadian stalwarts at this point, you know, yeah. like very, very Golden famous. Locks, sure, yeah. yeah, you know, and it also gave way to probably, you know, a bunch of one-hit wonders and that kind of thing. You know, maybe a band managed to get a tour. But if you had something happening on much and you got in a reasonable uh, rotation, your agent could book a tour right across the country, like in the next month. 
Yeah. Wow. It wasn't like a year-long plan. You had to react to it really quickly. Yeah. And uh, I, it's so, so hard, as, as Chris knows these days, for anybody to accomplish that. It was just the simplest thing back in the day. And you'd sell it down a record. Yeah. No, I remember doing interviews for uh, the book that I wrote about much, and people as diverse as Jan Arden or Larry mm-hmm. Gowan or the guys from The Hip were saying, you added our video, the next day we couldn't go to the grocery store. Yeah. Yeah. Mike, is it true that you had a very early connection to the Tragically Hip? I did the first television interview with the Hip. Really? The National Capital Commission was trying to get much involved in producing something for Canada Day uh, in Ottawa. And somebody said, uh, hey, Campbell, uh, you know, you're from, you lived in Ottawa. Why don't you take this? And I said, okay, well, how about we get the best eight unsigned bands in Canada We'll put them on a much, we'll call it the Indie Street stage, I think we decided to call it. And, uh, you know, what's the budget? The budget uh, was $25,000, and that's for everything. That's for paying the bands, travel, stage, PA, all of it. So I don't even think I've ever told anybody the story before. But uh, So the first thing I did is I said, uh, every band's going to get paid 1000 bucks because bands deserve to get paid. So that left, uh, you know, $17,000 in the budget. And, and I had bands from right across the country. And uh, I was hosting the event, shooting it for much. And the hip was the, uh, the band from Ontario that I picked. Um, and Holy I don't know fuck. that any of the other bands would have made much of an impact outside of the, the provinces they lived in. But the other band that I booked was the Sons of Freedom from Vancouver, who, for my money, were like, that was one of the best rock bands I'd I'd ever run across. And nobody even knew who they were at the time. Uh, They wound up being signed to Warner, too, I think. And Kurt Cobain, uh, um, in a much interview someplace, said that the members of Nirvana used to go to Vancouver to see the Sons of Freedom before they became a big deal. Nirvana. Wow. Yeah. Uh, well, that's a good one. I'm glad you saved it for us. <laughs> Mike, for years, the, um, the East Coast music scene, which you're very knowledgeable about, was looked upon as um, unique, but also somewhat insulated. Is that still true? And if it's not, um, who's led the way to changing it? Hmm. I think it's still true in a geographic sense. We don't get that many touring acts through here anymore, and it's and it's increasingly difficult for bands from here to do you know a proper Canadian tour or something. So, um, I think that we're still fairly isolated in that sense um, right. culturally. And uh, I mean, the thing that struck me when I first started coming out here, before I moved here even, was um, just the uh, how much music is 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 ingrained in the culture from here. Yeah. You know, kitchen parties and all the usual stereotypical thing that you think of. Uh, like, in my experience, everybody parties in their kitchen. Everywhere in the country, it's not just here. The only difference is here, the chances are somebody will break out an instrument while they're in the kitchen. You know, so that that legacy is still here and it always will be here because of the Celtic music uh, background and stuff. I mean, they still teach bagpipes and Gaelic language in Cape Breton. Uh, and those things will always be part of the the, the history here. Um, you know what? I'm I'm having a flashback courtesy of this story. When we did that crisscross Canada tour, we landed in uh, St. John's on yep. Canada Day, 
And uh, I remember we were walking down the street and some people leaned out of a window and were like, hey, much music, come on up. <laughs> come and have a drink with us. And we thought, yeah, why not? You know. So we did go up. And I remember people did just that. They pulled out instruments and music happened in the kitchen. And it was great. Yeah. And it's still a big part of it out here. The, the, the um, musicianship is still a big, big deal. You know, in Newfoundland, everybody's an actor, everybody's a musician, everybody's a writer. It's so part of the culture. Um, I think things have changed certainly since the days when I first got here, when if anybody knew of an East Coast musician, it was the Rankin family or it was right. Rita McNeil uh, or it was Hank Snow, you know, something like that, or Gene McClellan. Uh, right. And now, right. now, you know, with, you know, Joel Plaskett and Matt Mays and, you know, Wintersleep and Sloan, of course, and all of that kind of thing. I mean, people think of the East Coast, you know, differently. And I think it's also telling that, you know, the East Coast Music Awards was really the only award show outside of the Junos that was nationally broadcast by the CBC. And that's because the talent was so strong. You know, people with a national audience would tune yeah. into it. Well, thanks very much, Mike Campbell, for joining us. And um, to have someone, you know, waving the flag for East Coast music is really important to us. And it was uh, Christopher's great idea to include you on the show. Your own curiosity has revealed a lot of important things about Canadian culture. And uh, it's just been great meeting you and great talking to you. Well, thank you so much, Tom. I appreciate the kind words. It was great meeting you, too. From January of 1990, that's the Canadian classic Black Velvet by Alana Miles, written by my buddy Christopher Ward and co-written by his buddy Dave Tyson. And Christopher, I'm just thrilled for you that that song, Black Velvet, was just a few days ago inducted into the Canadian Songwriters Hall of Fame. And I know that in your vast career, this song has had a life of its own. Tell us why Black Velvet has been so special to you. Tom, that song has gone out into the world and done such phenomenal things for me and it just continues to year after year i mean aside from the fact that it earns royalties it makes me friends and i get connected to people that i otherwise wouldn't have known somebody will come up and say oh i was in this most unusual circumstance and there was your song playing in the background or your song meant so much to me at a certain time in my life those kinds of things um that is the gold for a songwriter to know that you've made that kind of personal connection and uh, that's why this song stands alone in my catalog. And Black Velvet has also been important because it put you firmly on an international level. And it meant that you got to work with many other people, right? Yeah, it provided me with a lot of opportunities. Um, there was a bit of a lineup at the door when I first moved to L.A. of people who wanted to write with me. Uh, it did diminish with time, and I can assure you. Um, it's funny because when you have success, it's like, a lot of other people think, oh, he must have the keys to the kingdom. He's figured it out, which, of course, was not true at all. I just wrote a song that did very well. And the things that have to happen all at once for a song to be that successful, you know, whether it's like a committed label or, you know, uh, the right kind of management, the greatest, the great vocal. I mean, just all the pieces had to fit together, and they certainly did with Black Velvet. Yeah, so let's talk about that. And to do that, we have to acknowledge the producer and co-writer of the song, Dave Tyson, and the incredible performance of your partner at the time, Alana Miles. Everything seemed to come together for the three of you in that moment. Yes, it was a three-way partnership 
all the way with this, with uh, David Tyson, Alana's uh, producer who, and co-writer of many of the songs, and of course Alana herself. And when you go through a long period of struggling, as we did, trying to find her sound and make the connections necessary for success, when you go through that together with somebody, it is just that much sweeter when it comes out the other side and it all works, and it's kind of to your amazement. But, um, yeah, Dave and Alana, just exceptionally talented people, and our chemistry just happened to blend the way it needed to. That's great. Black Velvet, written by Christopher Ward and Dave Tyson, performed by Alana Miles, now in the Canadian Songwriters Hall of Fame. Congrats, Christopher. Thanks, Tom. I'm still amazed at what that song has done for me, and being recognized for the thing that you love to do the most, it doesn't get any better. You are absolutely right about that. Well, we have covered a lot of ground on this episode, but like we said earlier, it is only a small slice of Canadian music and Canadian culture. There is so much more to explore. By the way, to hear the stories behind some of the greatest Canadian songs of all time, check out episodes 501 and 502 of Famous Lost Words. That's a wrap on this special edition of Famous Lost Words as we celebrate Canadian music. Our show was created and produced by Tom Jokic, a man who impressed us with his knowledge of music throughout this past season, but for some strange reason still remains a KISS fan. Oh, well. All right. Don't hate me because I'm stuck at the age of 14. Our show was co-written by that guy, Christopher Ward, who also created our theme music with his buddy, Rob Wells. Thanks, Rob. Christopher also has a new album out called Same River Twice, which I highly recommend. We'd like to acknowledge our special guests, including Terry David Mulligan, who spoke to us from Nanus Bay, British Columbia. Terry hosts the Mulligan Stew podcast and is also the host of Tasting Room Radio, which is all about food and wine. And thanks to Mike Campbell in Halifax, a wonderful storyteller. Visit Mike at the Carlton, a great restaurant and a wonderful place to see a live show. I also want to thank all of the great interviewers that we have featured this season, including, ready? Rick Ringer, Elaine McDonald, Steve Herringer, Dale Smith, Ingrid Schumacher, John Donaby, Lee Eckley, Richard Maxwell, Bruce Marshall, May Potts, Roger Ashby, Marilyn Dennis, Taylor Kay, Ashley Greco, Jeannie Becker, Shannon Burns, Meredith Shaw, and Richie Favalero, and many more. I hope I haven't forgotten anyone. And I also want to acknowledge some of the interviewers that we've lost over the years, including Terry Michael, Larry Wilson, Nancy Crant, and John Major. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And feel free to browse the archives with more than 90 previous episodes on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you listen to podcasts. Well, that's a wrap for Season 6 of Famous Lost Words. Season 7 begins in a few weeks with the likes of Aerosmith, Steve Miller, Taylor Swift, Triumph, The Righteous Brothers, Frank Zappa, yes, Celine Dion, Ray Charles, and Crosby, Stills, and Nash. Oh, no pressure, Christopher. Now I have to find all those in the archives, which, since I love this stuff, is an absolute pleasure for me. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, Christopher. Talk to you next season. Thanks, Christopher.